Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Mindful with Joe. I'm your host Josie Libero and in this episode I get to sit down with one of my mentors Jonah Vilches and he talks to us a little bit about male survivorship and I think that um, for those of you who don't really know what that is um, or what I'm even talking about so when I say survivorship I'm talking about people who have survived sexual violence or dating violence of any sort um, and often we think about victims or survivors of uh, those experiences, we think about women. And that's because a lot of women are survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. But we also know that men can be survivors. And I think that that's definitely an underserved population. It's a population who have a lot of barriers to reporting. And so I don't even think that we have all the data and statistics about who or how many people are experiencing that because it's so stigmatized. And so that's why I was so overjoyed to sit down with Jonel because he knows a lot about um, male survivorship and he knows just from working in the fields, different people's experiences and what what are those barriers and why is it so hard for men specifically to be able to say that they're survivors and get the help that they need. <clears throat> so in that, um, I was really, really happy to be able to sit down with him and I hope that in this episode you can just learn a little bit and then maybe be able to support a friend or a family member when, when or if they have a similar experience. I hope you enjoy. where I went to school. So I didn't go to school actually for social work or psychology or anything of that nature. I actually went to school for acting. Um, total, I know total left field. Um, but I went to school called the American musical and dramatic Academy, uh, in Manhattan, New York. Um, so although my background is in acting, like a lot of my professional background has been in blending like arts and activism, what is like coined as artivism. So a lot of my work has like been doing that work, <laughs> um, you know, focusing on like telling untold stories um, and amplifying voices that historically, you know, don't often have the platform to, you know, to share. So that's kind of a, a little bit of my background. Perfect. So since you came from like theater and the arts, how did you end up working in interpersonal violence? <laughs> you know, that's a fun story. So um, when I graduated college, um, I, I lived in New York after for about a year and a half. And I was like, you know what? I, I, I was auditioning and doing things and I started to realize um, that so much of it was out of my control. A lot of it was based on appearance. Like I was either too, I was too white to be cast as Puerto Rican, which I am Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. And to Puerto Rican to be cast in white roles. So I kind of like had this void. So I was like, I'm going to go to Florida, try to do some things in Miami. Hated Florida. I came back to Jersey and I started, um, I did entry level work with this organization I used to volunteer with as a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, and just due to experiences that I had in college, everything just kind of lined up. And I was like, you know what? I want to do this because it was in the city that I grew up in, um, the city that I was born in. Um, and having had a similar experience to a lot of survivors, you know, in this, in this field, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about, you know, what I know from my end and learn as much as I can. So 
when I started that nonprofit work, I just was like going to every single training I possibly could, like anything that I could do to learn more about interpersonal violence. Um, and somehow I found my way to Rutgers. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm super grateful that I did. But a lot of it was just, you know, getting that education from that entry level prevention position and then just, you know, doing my thing and kind of working my way up. So not only it was difficult, but, <laughs> you know, a lot of it was just finding every educational opportunity I could. Um, so, yeah. That's so interesting. I was just talking to Lisa, who's another person who works at uh, VPVA the other day, and she said, I came into inter- interpersonal violence work through the back door. And now that mm-hmm. now, as I hear more and more stories, I'm like, did everybody come in through the back door? Like, <laughs> did anyone was like, yeah, this is the career path I'm on. And I'm going to do this work. Or did everyone just have a roundabout <laughs> way of getting there? It's just so interesting. It, it is so interesting. I think specifically with like anti-sexual violence, domestic violence work. Yeah. I don't think it's something anyone ever goes, I want to do exactly that. Yeah. It's something that you you find yourself doing and it's not like a, Oh, it's, it's not, it's not ever like, Oh, I'm doing this because I don't want to do it. Like you get into it because it's something you're passionate about, but I feel like it finds you more so than you find it. Yeah. I completely agree with that. So for those of us who don't know what interpersonal so, violence is, could you just explain the like, just like the term interpersonal violence? What is it? Yeah. So interpersonal violence is described as violence that occurs between individuals. <laughs> That's like the rundown definition of it. Um, but when we think about how we categorize it in terms of like violence and crimes, we're usually describing crimes such as uh, sexual violence and harassment and assault, um, dating and domestic violence, uh, stalking, and at times human trafficking. So it, those were kind of the highlights when we discuss interpersonal violence. Awesome. Thank you. <clears throat> so let's just get into it. There is a misconception that men cannot be raped. So can you just basically debunk this myth and explain to us why that is not true. Yeah. Oh, I mean, so start at the beginning, you know, like men can absolutely be sexually assaulted. Men can experience things like domestic violence. And I think a lot of the reason why we don't ever see men as survivors is because again, the majority of the time this, this crime is committed by men. Right. So then, um, and at the same time, most often than not, it's, you know, regardless of the gender of the victim as well. So even if it's, you know, if we have a male survivor, he's usually being harmed by another man. Yeah. Um, but when we think about it in terms of women being perpetrators, you know, socially, the way we set up gender, we don't, we don't allow men to be victims of anything. Right. Um, I mean, especially things like interpersonal violence. So when we think of crimes, when we think of anything in violence <laughs> as a man, you're told you have to defend yourself. You're not ever allowed to be a victim. Um, so when we think of things like sexual violence, we often view men as like, well, what do you like? What do you mean that happened? Right? Like you're supposed to defend yourself. You're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to fight back. You know, everything that gets thrown on women as survivors, yeah. but kind of in a different light for men, yeah. um, because it's not something you were ever supposed, you know, supposed to happen, or not anything that was supposed to happen to you. And particularly when we think of men who are harmed by women, right? I mean, it, again, it goes back to well, you're a guy. Right. Like, what do you mean? You you're a guy that wasn't supposed to happen. And that's just, again, all of the gender socialization that we have growing up. Yeah. So would you say it's common for men to be victims of interpersonal violence or is it not so common? So personally, and, you know, we have this stat that says one in six, you know, one in six men before 18 will experience some form of sexual violence. Yeah. Um, 
but I think it's honestly higher and on par because there's so many men that are not reporting it. Yeah. And there's so many things like I, I was, I've been doing this work for four years now and it's so weird thinking about it in that light. Um, but so many things that men experience, they sometimes don't even process as sexual violence or domestic violence until like years later, it could be even a decade after it happened. Yeah. Uh, because things like get so normalized. Like, I mean, one of the stereotypes that get thrown out a lot is like, Oh, you know, young men, you know, when we think of like teachers and like students often, you know, we're so like, I mean, there's been so many stories across the world about this. Uh, but typically, you know, it's changing now, but when we would see like a young man and like an older teacher, it would often get fetishized, right? It'd be like, Oh, that's so hot or like not processing that that's an adult taking advantage of a child. So a lot of these adverse experiences sometimes don't even get processed as sexual violence. So interesting. Um, so you kind of started to touch on it a little bit, but this idea of women being perpetrators, so women perpetrating men specifically in like, I guess, a heterosexual, um, story, a lot of people believe that that like can't happen. So can we like debunk that for a second? Can, can women be, can women perpetrate men? Yes. (laughs) Like there's, there's no restriction as far as who can commit, you know, this violence and there's no restriction on be a victim or survivor of it so when we think of sexual violence right a lot of it comes it boils down to power and control and anyone is able to assert power regardless of gender regardless of sexual orientation that's something a lot of people can do yeah and when we think of when we think of sexual violence specifically when we think of um women harming men you know it's it's not something that gets talked about frequently because again there's still a lot of people that don't think that can happen so yeah. when we talk about consent, right, when, when we talk about the laws of consent, it applies to everybody. Yeah. So when we look at it from a perspective of, again, was that something he actively wanted to do? Was he enthusiastic? Did he enthusiastically say yes? Yeah. Right. All of those things still apply. Now, the reason why we don't often see it get highlighted in that way is because we don't, again, I mean, historically, right, men have privilege, right? <laughs> There's a certain level of privilege that men have. But at the same time, right, if if a man is blackout drunk and a woman is now groping him inappropriately, right. Or touching inappropriately, that's, that's not okay. Right. So the same, same rules apply. Um, now again, there's so many myths that go out like, Oh, but guys always want it or guys, always, yeah. you know, and that's not true. Right. And the same laws of alcohol and consent still, still cross over for men as well. Again, you, you're less likely to probably see it. Um, like anything with sexual violence is usually done in, you know, in private. Um, but again, it's it still applies in that same manner. And as as men, as survivors, post you know post assault or post things that occur, again, they might not even process it because their friends around them might be telling them, "Oh, yay! Like you know, you got laid last night. Congratulations!" All of these things that we you know attribute to masculinity, um, and in his mindset, he might need, he might be uncomfortable with what happened, but his own mind and thought processing is like, "Well, everyone's telling me it's okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't that bad." Yeah. That's so hard because, like, I I hear that all the time. And I think that, like, you brought up a good point of, like, <clears throat> men saying to men, like, oh, you're fine. Like, that that sounds like that was really fun. Like, you got, mm-hmm. like, exactly, you got laid. I also hear, like, women saying things like that to men. Like, oh, like, oh, you just, like, got drunk and hooked up with a girl. Like, yeah, that's regular. That's normal. Instead of being, like are you okay? <laughs> like that sounds like you were blacked out drunk and then you had sex. And so I think that that's just like, 
it go I think it's all of us like contributing to that culture of like normalizing that kind of behavior towards men specifically. Um, so one of the questions I got in my DMs was, if a woman hits a man first, can a man hit her back? And I just kind of wanted to bring this up because first of all, it's just an interesting question, but I guess I wanted to talk more about like, what are the laws around that? Like, what does that even look like? Yeah, so <laughs> right, when we think of things like dating and domestic violence, specifically yeah. physical, um, I mean, it goes back to the thing of like, oh, defend yourself, right? And first recognizing that, again, everything's about power and control. The person who's inflicting harm on you has such a powerful grasp over this other individual. Like yeah. they're they're controlling their physical, like their physical autonomy, their like everything. Yeah. So when we think about, you know, I, I feel like it goes back to the idea of like, oh, girls can't really hurt you that bad, right? I mean, that's something that we're taught from like preschool like preschool on like oh don't hit girls girls can't you know if a girl hits you don't hit her back yeah so a lot of it plays into that gender and then when we think about in terms of like self-defense it's it, it's different in every state so depending on where you are the laws may be different but in new jersey you're only able to fully defend yourself if you are at are at serious risk of your life right yeah. and if that's not there um you can't ever harm someone in greater force so when we think about Again, if a woman hits a man, he's able to defend himself to a certain extent, right? And that applies to anybody of any gender. Yeah. Uh, and then additionally, you know, if when we think about, again, things like domestic violence, if a man is b- being physically harmed by a woman, right, he's not, pro- he's probably not going to tell anybody about it. Yeah. Um, and let alone, like, try to take that to court. Because unfortunately, you know, although court is supposed to be unbiased, there's still they're people, right? They're people who grew up learning about gender. Um, so they still have that bias of men are stronger than women. Yeah. Uh, again, not every court situation is like that. Everything is different. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, the laws say one thing, but then we as humans and what we believe to be stronger and more powerful, you know, is another. That's so interesting. So we talked about this a little bit um, when we were just talking on the phone and I just want to go and say it again, but like, so let's say somebody pushes somebody like they shove them and then you shove them back and they like fall down the stairs even if prior to that specific incident they have like like beaten you up or hurt you or like done other things to you like it wasn't this push was kind of accumulation of hurts in that moment you push them they fall down the stairs and like whatever maybe get like a concussion or really seriously hurt that doesn't matter yeah unfortunately (laughs) again when we look at it's very specific to the moment. Now, yeah. proving things like domestic violence again in court, yeah. that's very difficult for survivors. So when something like that happens, right, again, perpetration is about power and control. Yeah. So if someone is pushing me, right, and then I push them back and now they sustain a serious injury, if in that moment I was not severely physically harmed, I could be liable in court for, mm-hmm. you know, for the it's caused. So when we think about, oh, why don't survivors fight back? Because they could get charges, right? Um, Because it's so specific about, like, fear of, like, it needs to be a life-threatening fear. And in that moment, again, the only person, you you can feel like your life is threatened, but the court can say one thing, right? Based off of, well, if you were only shoved, you know, you weren't, your life wasn't really threatened at that moment. Yeah. Uh, Now, they could look at previous things of domestic violence in the past, 
But again, right, we know it's incredibly difficult for survivors to, you know, unfortunately to, to quote, prove that things happened. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's never that simple, right? And it's not as simple as just, oh, we'll just fight back if your partner's hurting you because unfortunately you could be liable in court now. So it's, it's so complex. And again, it, it's when we see our justice system not work for survivors of any crime. Um, there's so many caveats to it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for just like clarifying that. Um, so you have you have definitely started to talk about it, but why is there so much stigma around male survivorship? And maybe just like what are what are those barriers specifically for male survivors in just getting like support or um, the resources that they need? Yeah, and I mean, I think too, you know, kind of dehomogenizing men as well. Um, you know, because even when we think of, like, added layers of, like, men who are in the LGBTQ plus community yeah. and trans, right? I mean, there's so many, so many layers as far as, like, why people don't reach out, right? So when we think of, you know, when we, when we talk about survivors in general, right? I mean, things like, who's going to believe me, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't want to report it because law enforcement and court, like, that's a lot of energy, especially yeah. you know, if I'm a college student or if I'm, a, you know, if I'm a working adult. Like, the time and energy that takes... Um, and then, to, you know, additionally, people don't really know how to like go to court. Right. And I say that because it's not something that people typically do. Right. Like, oh, like most of them, people don't typically report crimes and like are familiar with that process. Yeah. Um, though at the same time, when you get to court, they expect you to be familiar with it. Like as an, as an American, um, but that's another conversation. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's very, um, it's very interesting when we think about why men don't. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting uh, notifications here. Uh, but it's very interesting why men don't report is because of so many barriers, right? Because what we talk about, you're a man, you're not supposed to experience violence. So who's going to believe me, right? Um, if I'm part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, I'm going to have to like out myself and then additionally experience discrimination because of that. Yeah. Um, and then apply stereotypes, right? So, oh yeah, of course, you know, gay men are experiencing sexual violence more because of X, Y, Z, like fill in the blank, right? Yeah. All the stereotypes attributed to it. Um, and then additionally, there's this other layer, like you said, of processing, right? So yeah. if I'm being told as a man, I can't experience these things and it happens to me, I start to question if it really did, right? Yeah. It, I'm like, did that really count as sexual violence? Did that count as domestic violence? Because yeah. I was never told that it could happen to me. So there's so many, so many things that pro- start processing through your mind. And then additionally, um, you know, a lot of this work with, with right reason, right. Um, a lot of it is focused on women as survivors. Yeah. Um, so then when it does happen to a man, right. The feeling of like, well, I was never really part of this conversation, yeah. right. Even though we know that they are right. Um, a lot of it tends to be, you know, branded as like white feminism, which often excludes uh, people of other identities. So then yeah. you're also like, do I really have a part in this movement? Can I claim being a survivor of this? If I never felt like I could. Yeah. So there's, there's so many like layers upon layers, right? Additionally, they reflect why, uh, why other survivors don't report just kind of in a different, in a different sphere. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. Whenever you, whenever we start getting into all the layers, I'm just like, oh, it's so intersectional, right? Because like, if you add like LGBTQ to the mix and then you add like race to the mix and then you add like class to the mix, it just like, it all starts to add up and it's all like so interconnected because you can be you can be someone who is a survivor of sexual violence and then add that you are a gay man, add that you are a black man. And like, it just yeah. all starts to add up because it just, 
increases the amount of bar barriers you have to resources. And it's just, it's just hard to be a person. As, as you know, that's my favorite line. It's hard to yeah. be a person. <laughs> You know, it gets me thinking, too. I, I have a book here because I have a stack of books. That's what my dining table has become. Um, <laughs> but I have this book called, and kind of like we're saying, just the title's just Raped Black Male. Um, it's by Kenneth Rogers Jr. And just that title, alone, like, you know what it's about. And it's it talks about his experience um, as a child. And then with his identity as a black man, like, again, that's this space was never for me. I never felt like I could be a survivor. So it's... Yeah. It's such a great read. Um, and then he also has like a, another one called Heroes, Villains, and Healing, which like goes about like using comic books as like, you know, as a tool for healing. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, these experiences aren't told and they don't get highlighted uh, because socially, you know, our move, I feel like a lot of individuals in the movement are ready for it. Yeah. But then our, our world still tells us, no, those people can't experience violence. You're not supposed to, you know, toughen up, get through it. Yeah. Um, so there, there's so many social barriers in the way. Absolutely. So I think one of the hardest things is when you are someone who wants to be a good advocate, ally, et cetera, and then you're sitting in a group of friends and someone's like, oh, yeah, men can't be raped. And you're like, mm. I don't know what to say to that. I actually don't. Right. I don't know how how to respond. So could you maybe just like give us like a couple things that maybe if like someone says that to us in our spheres, in our circles, how can we respond to that in a way that is calling in and not calling out? Yeah. And I like that you said that because I know for me, especially when I was like very early in this work, like in my teenage years, similarly, right. As yeah. like friends saying problematic things. One of the things that always popped in my head was just be like, Oh, I'm going to like, you know, go with fire. Right. Like I'm just going to go and heat it. I'm going to yell at this person and argue with them. Um, and really when we're arguing, rarely are we ever listening to each other. Right. Yeah. So my often go-to is to just be like, ask someone, okay, well, why, like, what, why do you think that? Not even like asking them like attack, like, yeah. So why, why can't men be raped? Right. And then like having them run me through their thought process. Mm. Right. So as they're doing that, right. Um, you'll, you know, you'll see some inconsistencies and, and um, you know, just doing that education. So I was coming like, okay, well, you know, if they say, oh, well, men always want it. Um, again, I go, okay, well, does that apply to, you know, if let's say someone's 12 years old and now there's a, mm. you know, a girl, did he want it? Right. Mm. Um, you know, they're going to say no. I'm like, okay, cool. Right. So then like, let's age this person up a bit. Um, what about the, uh, and then I go, so at what age does, does a guy always want it? Yeah. And again, right. Then it, that's kind of a, that's kind of like a larger question. And it's not me being like affirming it. It's me genuinely asking this person, tell me what you think, right? Like, tell me what you think, because one, I genuinely want to know. And then also two, right. To point out, the flaws in their logic. And this is kind of like, I don't know. I kind of like, <laughs> it doesn't always work, but that's always my approach uh, specifically when I'm doing like education and I yeah. see like a problem response. I'm like, walk me through your thought process yeah. and I'm going to like educate you afterwards. Um, and if at the end of the day, we don't agree, that's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly if it's a friend, um, you know, <laughs> You know, friends come and go, right? It's like a different conversation. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, too, you know, a lot of it's, it's we always want to go in with fire. Um, and sometimes you just need to go in and be like, walk me through your process. Like, yeah. like let, like, tell me, tell me what it, you know? So that's, that yeah. tends to be like a little bit of a better approach. I love that. That's like extremely helpful, even like for me, because I do come in with fire oftentimes. Mm -hmm. I'm like, <laughs> 
and then I had mm -hmm. to like bring it back and I'm like we're all ha we're all coming from different places and we all have our own experiences that might lead us to these ideologies and understandings of things and it really just sometimes takes someone being like hey your logic is slightly flawed for people mm -hmm. to realize that like they have been thinking something that is really not accurate or healthy and actually quite harm harmful for other people yeah um, and you know oh yeah go oh sorry I was just going to add on to it. If I'm talking too much, let me know. No, I so, um, you know, another thing I keep thinking about is, you know, everyone comes from different backgrounds. Like every time I do programming, um, you know, I'm always asking people like, Hey, how many of you had sex ed in high school? Right. Yeah. And like everyone always raises their hand. And then I always ask like, how many of you thought it was effective? No one raises their hands. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, always thinking like everyone is coming from a different background. And if we're not getting educated from school, you know, we're getting it from, you know, parents. And if parents aren't telling us, we're getting it from peers and peers aren't getting it from anywhere, right? We're getting it from media. So a lot of these things and a lot of, you know, ideology that we consider like problematic, it, a lot of it stems from, again, just everyone grows up differently, right? And everyone grows up consuming different media, learning different lessons, valuing different things. Yeah. Um, and especially, you know, I mean, the 20s are an awkward phase of anybody's life. But especially in your 20s, like, you're absorbing so much information, and then you're finally, pro like, you know, from teenager onwards, you're finally processing, like, wait, that happened in high school, and maybe I don't agree with it now. Yeah. Um, so it's a constant, constant, you know, shift of mind and in, in, uh, in, uh, in viewpoints, so. No, absolutely. If I, if people judge me for what I believed when I was 15, no one would want to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to look back at when they were a teenager. <laughs> no. Seriously. Because I, I had, like, no exposure to, like, other people or other people's ideology. I was, I basically was just, like, a parent of, a parent, a parent of my parents or, like, the people, like, my teachers and people around me. I was like, oh, they said it, mm -hmm. so that's true. Boom. That's now my ideology about things. And now I'm like yeah. a person who like makes my own opinions and they're constantly changing. Like I used to be like afraid to say that, that like my views are constantly changing. But like, when I was a freshman, I think I like, I was very much like, Oh, I hear something. And then I'm like going to be like the biggest advocate for it. And now I'm like, I'm going to do something and then I'm going to listen. And then my, and then I'm going to change my mind and then I'm going to get more data. And then my, mind is going to change again and then I'm going to get uh, even more information and then my mind is going to change all over again <laughs> yeah being informed yeah. um and again you know as growing up you're just told this is how it is and you have to listen to it yeah right you don't you don't ever really have time to process as a teenager um so so many things again so many things that you're learning and growing you know a lot of it is particularly in like early 20s you're starting to be like I don't think I agree with that anymore, you know? So I'll just say friends can change, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say friends can change. Um, so, you know, we don't always have to just, like, completely exclude a friend out. But at the same time, if that's what you want to do, like, don't talk to that person anymore. That's fine. Yeah. So. No, I agree. You have to take care of yourself first. Mm-hmm. And protect your peace. Um, yes. So my last, I guess my last question or thing for you is, like, do you have any final words or words of wisdom advice specifically for anyone who maybe like is a survivor and kind of like is looking for resources to get help or um, anyone who is like, wow, this is like a thing. And now I want to do more. Um, do you have any advice, words of wisdom for that? 
Yeah. Um, you know, it, when we think about advice for survivors um, and resources and such, you know, just the recognition that, you know, anything that I recommend, everyone's healing process is unique, right? So what worked yeah. for me and what worked for someone else may not work, you know, for you. Yeah. Uh, but I know something that, at least in New Jersey, that is really, really awesome is that wherever you are in New Jersey, there is a county-based program, usually there are nonprofits, that offers free services for survivors. So yeah. wherever you are in the state, like know that there is someone who can help you um, and for free. Uh, so all that information for sexual assault is on NJ Casa's website. And then for domestic violence, it's NJCEDV, which is the Coalition um, to End Domestic Violence. So again, wherever you are in New Jersey, like there is someone who can help you. And similarly in other states, mm-hmm. they have those, again, like the New Jersey Coalition Against Sexual Assault. There's one for California. There's one for Texas. So there are resources out there and, you know, you can put them in a quick search and Google it. Um, and they offer things like free counseling. Um, so, you know, you don't need to run insurance. Some states are better than others. Yeah. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Um, some states don't, you know, fund these organizations. Um, but, you know, the information is out there. Um, but, you know, it, you know, it's hard, though, when you are a survivor to, to one, process what happened, and then, two, to accept getting help. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's the largest barriers not only in processing what happened to you, but then going through the the thought process of being like, I need help, yeah. right? Because across the board, and I don't know if it's like an American thing or just across the board as humans, we have a really hard time accepting help, right? We don't yeah. we don't want to reach out to people, particularly to talk about something so traumatic. Yeah. Um, so the moment you can realize that you can't do it by yourself, right? You can't do it alone or, you know, it's not working. Yeah. Um, even if it's talking to a friend, right? Because the the therapists are great, right? But sometimes what you need is a friend in that moment. Yeah. Uh, So I think the biggest, the biggest barrier is just going through that acceptance of I can't do this by myself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Oh, oh, and then, um, and then the other side of that was um, what, do you have any advice for people who are like, are the support system, the people who like are (laughs) trying to help people through this? Yes. Uh, begin by believing. Like, I feel like that's always the, the first point, particularly, you know, when you're going on the topic, right? Particularly if a man is coming to you and saying, hey, my girlfriend did this, she's doing that. Yeah. Don't, you, again, gender socialization is so rigid in us. Even if you are like, you know, even if you're someone who thinks like, oh, you know, I don't really ascribe to that. Somewhere deep down in your brain, there's still something in there that questions it, right? Uh, and it's it's not a fault. It's not a fault for you. It's just, it's, it's so ingrained in us socially. So always start by believing, right? By hearing your friends out, not questioning the validity of it, not questioning why they did something or why they didn't do this or no, right? Because they've already ran that through their head 5,000 times. So just supporting your friends and recognizing, I, I say this all the time, but recognizing that when someone is coming to you, telling you their story about trauma, they're not always looking for advice, right? Sometimes they just want you to listen. Right. Yeah. So uh, really avoiding going into that therapist savior mode and just being someone who listens and who affirms what they're going through. And if they ask you, what should I do? Yeah. Again, it's veering away from what you, you think they should do and offering them resources, right? Being like, well, you know, you could, you could do this, right? Here are some options over here. You could do this or, you know, doing nothing is always an option. 
Yeah. Right. I feel like we always want to go action helper mode, but telling a friend, if you need to just like pause, yeah, that's, that is a valid option. Yeah. I love that. So, I love that. Yeah. I don't think we pause enough. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. I always, this is so funny, but I, um, I do coaching for girls on the run and basically what it is, it's like a, a girls empowerment program where we do like physical activity, but we also do like, um, I guess like lessons is what we call them. But one of the things that we do is um, it's all, it's kind of about like processing your emotions. And one of the things that we teach is like stop and take a breather. And it's like, when you're in a situation and you feel overwhelmed, what should you do? And it's like, stop, take a deep breath, think, like run through your options and then respond. And then the thing I love about it is the last part is like, um, it's like go back and, and think like was that the best option and I think that that's really cool because it reminds us like maybe if we didn't respond so well the first time we have an opportunity to respond well the next time and reflect on like what we did and I think that that's really cool and I don't know it's cool when we when we actually are teaching kids this because maybe mm-hmm. those kids will grow up and not be like ah right right yeah. and I think again like so much of the education like needs to start early right so much because and this is something that I noticed too like coming to college or not coming to college but coming like working at a university yeah you know there again I talk about the mindsets can mindsets can absolutely shift but the earlier they can start again because like I said kids are getting it from media mostly yeah so the the earlier we can start doing the intervention we're like the work that you're doing that is so awesome right teaching kids to breathe and like listen to their body yeah. Right. It may not seem like it's connected to what we're talking about, but it absolutely is. No, right. Is. Telling them to, hey, trust your gut, trust your intuition. Yeah. I mean, it seems to you if you're overwhelmed, it's okay to stop and take a breather. Right. Starting to do that process of like processing your emotions. So that is so, so awesome because yeah. like that's the work that needs to get done. So it's so cool to hear that you're doing that. Oh, I know. I absolutely love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You are such like a wealth of knowledge. Of course. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you too. And have a great weekend. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Mindflow with Joe. If you like what you heard, make sure to click the follow button and the notifications button on whatever platform you're listening on. So you never miss an episode. Also, remember to follow on Instagram at MindFlowWithJoePod so you can let me know what kind of content you would like to hear more of. And lastly, don't forget to recommend a friend. Episodes will be released every other Thursday.